Blog Talk Radio. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, and I love the participation that we get from the chatters, please sign in through your blog, talk, radio, or Facebook account. Now, have you ever considered searching records of incarceration to find your ancestors? Whether researching a notorious family outlaw or a victim of early 20th century justice, there's a good chance that you have an ancestor who has been incarcerated. Researching records of incarceration at local, state, or federal penal institutions can reveal valuable family history information and also document shameful community patterns of social and economic abuse. Sharon Batiste Gillens will discuss the genealogical value of searching records of incarceration. Sharon is a native of Galveston, Texas, with paternal ancestral roots in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, and maternal roots in Fort Bend County, Texas. A lifelong interest in her family's history led to an active involvement in researching African-American family history over the past 25 years. She is an adjunct faculty at Samford Institute of Genealogy and Historical Research in Birmingham. So let me give a warm welcome to Sharon Batiste Gillens to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Sharon. Well, thank you, Bernice. Thank you very much. It's always glad to join you. Oh, always glad to have you. Oh, now this is going to be one of those subjects for us to talk about tonight. So let's get started. Let's get started with one very important question. What are some of the challenges a researcher may face when researching records of incarceration? Well, the first challenge is to start right in, in the family. When you're doing your research, sometimes you may come across somebody who's just missing. You know, they're there for a while, and then all of a sudden, Uncle Buddy's no longer around. He's not in any any of the family pictures. You can't find him in the census records, and uh, you just don't know what happened. Where was Uncle Buddy? And I'm just using him as an example. Well, then you might ask yourself, did Uncle Buddy cross the law? If he's missing from all the family rec- family census records, you can't find him in the city directories, there's no tax records for him, everybody seems to have a vague memory of him, and people are giving you veiled references like, oh, he was something else when he was young. Or there are whispered stories going around in the family 
then there's a possibility that Uncle Buddy got caught up with uh, with the law in some kind of way. So the challenge then is to figure that out, to find out whether he did uh, commit a crime. That is the first challenge because mm-hmm. in order to uh, discover genealogical information, then you have to discover details of the offense in order to track down the records. So that's where I'd like to start. I'd like to start with how can we discover details of the offense? You as a researcher need to know some basic things. The first basic thing is was there really an offense or an incarceration? Was he really in jail? If he was, who was involved? What was the date of the offense and the nature of the crime? Those are the basic facts that you have to find out. Then there are legalities that you have to find out. You have to figure out what was the degree of the crime according to uh, state, local, or federal law. What was the jurisdiction? The jurisdiction is the authority designated to administer the justice in the case. So those are all things that you have to find out in order to track down records. Now, the sources to find out that kind of information, of course, just like in all genealogical pursuits, the first place to start is in the family. Pay attention to what they don't say as much as what they do say and see if you can get somebody off to the side and, uh, of course, you know how to do it, work it, work them. Uh, if you have to serve them a little extra glass of wine to get them to loosen up <laughs> a little bit, get that information flowing, but any kind of clues. The next place you can uh, start to look is newspapers. Definitely you want to check in newspapers to see if you can find uh, an, uh, an offense associated with your your ancestor by name. And, of course, you want to make sure you are looking in African-American newspapers if you're researching African-Americans. If it's a significant crime, it would certainly be reported. Uh, the police department is a great place to start also, and also the cl- county clerk's office. So th- the reason you have to find out all of that is because the crime in the jurisdiction lead to the records. So let's talk a little bit about the types of crimes that there are. And I'll go through each type of crime or the level or degree of the crime and kind of explain it and and give you an idea of the kind of information that you can find out from a record related to that degree of a crime. The okay. first degree of the crime is a misdemeanor. It's a lesser offense. The the city or a local uh, municipality establishes the ordinances related to what's a crime in the city. There are lesser offenses. The um, The time... In jail is usually one year or less or even just a fine. And and the offender is put into the county jail for incarceration. If it's a state felony, that's a more serious crime. And felonies put by, against the state are set by the state. So what's a felony in one state may not be a felony in another state, but a felony is a state felony is established by the state. The the amount of time spent in jail is one year plus a day to life or even death. In a state prison is where they are incarcerated. So, uh, so we've got misdemeanors, county jail, less than a year. We've got felonies, state, serious crime, set by the state, one year to life or even death in a state prison. And, of course, then there are uh, federal crimes, which are also felonies, serious crimes, but those uh, crimes are established by Congress. And they are also more than one year, one year and a day, to life or even death in a federal prison is where a person who has committed a, felon, a federal crime is incorpor- incarcerated. So let's go back and then kind of do this with uh, using a case case study so I can give you an example. I had a person that came to Galveston. She maybe she's out there listening even. She was in Sacramento. She came to Galveston because she had a relative who had been killed here in Galveston. 
1934. She didn't know anything about the uh, the crime except her ancestor's name and uh, the approximate year that uh, the crime was committed. So I did a newspaper search, and it did not come up by the person's name, the individual's name, but I put in Negro and murder, and it came up. So you have to be uh, clever when you're searching for things and hoping to find them because whoever indexes a newspaper decides what's important to use as a keyword. So I found it and uh, found out that a man named Henry O'Connor was the one who was charged with the murder. And it gave Henry O'Connor's nickname or his alias, which was the Lone Wolf. And and so the article said, Henry O'Connor, Negro known as the Lone Wolf, was charged with murder after another Negro, Manuel Lucas, 35, of 102 17th Street, died of a knife wound inflicted during a melee in a restaurant at 27th and Church Street about 10 o'clock last night. Now, that's a lot of information. That is a lot of information. We now know the name of the person who was charged with the crime. We know that person's alias. We know that uh, uh, Manuel Lucas, the ancestor that she was searching for, we had his exact address at the time of the crime. We know how he died and that there was a fight in a restaurant, and we know exactly where the restaurant was and what time the whole thing occurred. So that's quite a bit of information. So and she, how course, long ago was this? Uh, did you find this? And give us the time this period. In, this was in 1934, and okay. I found it in the Galveston Daily News. So okay. she, we were able to start off with the information that she already had, which was. My ancestor, whose name was Manuel Lucas, was killed in Galveston in around 1930 to 35. Mm -hmm. So that was the starting point. So whatever you can get from your relatives or your family members about the ancestors is where you will start. It's your starting point for finding additional information. So we have names and ages of the criminal and the victim. We have the degree of the crime, which was a felony murder. We know what the jurisdiction is. It was the Galveston County. We know the date, which was the 28th of April, 1934. We know that the victim was stabbed in a bar fight, and it even identified the name of the officers who were uh, on the case. So Now, Sharon, I have a question. I sure. have a question coming out of the chat already, and the question is, what about records in the early 1800s, which you searched the same way as you searched in the 1930s? I would not. I would I would uh, do archival first because there's, there's going to be – you may get lucky and find someone through the newspaper, and you won't have anybody who you can go to and ask specific information that might lead to that. But – uh, as we'll talk about later, the, tracking down the records uh, by the nature of the crime will lead you to the records. And, of course, just like uh, record groups in, in every state, different states have different different uh, have maintained different records. And when we get to the state records, we'll talk about how you can go about identifying historical records, the location of historical records related to related to crimes. Okay, and so, and I know you're going to get to this, but I'll just give you yeah. the question so that you can uh ask no answer it later. But it the the rec the question is, do you know anything about the records of the Federal District Court of Fort Smith? And uh she's referring to the ones that are supposed to be in Fort Worth. No, not not anything specific but I would be interested to talk to uh, that uh, that chatter offline maybe about that, and I can maybe give, give you some suggestions about how to go about that. If it's a federal, if it's a federal facility of incarceration, then the federal government is going to maintain the records. Um, right. And she's so, talking about the hanging judge, Judge Parker's records out of Fort Worth. I mean, excuse me, out of uh, Fort Smith. And he was a federal judge? 
I'm waiting if he for was a federal, If he was a federal, if he was a federal case, yes, he if was he was a federal, federal judge. Case, yes. Then that, that's going to be, uh, I would start looking in the National Archives. Right. And uh, there are federal prisons in, in locations throughout the, the country, and during the period of time that he was on the bench, there were he was a federal judge. Then those people were incarcerated or uh, killed in under his jurisdiction. Now there's a there is a website that I think would be interesting to her. It's called Prison Search. Uh, it's under Ancestor Hunt. So go to ancestor.com/forward/slash/genealogical/underscore/prison underscore records dot htm and there is a listing by state of all the different state uh a jail old prison records and jail records going back and then there are also prisoner executions and there might definitely be some information in there that would lead her to the specific records that that she's uh, that she's seeking but uh, that's one of the main uh, key items to get out of this conversation tonight is that the nature of the crime will lead you to the records. And that's why you have to find out right away what the nature of the crime is, whether it's a, a misdemeanor, a state felony, or a federal case, in order to track down the records. Because the nature of the crime and the jurisdiction will lead you to the records. Okay, and okay. I've been asked for you to uh, state the site one more time. Okay. Ancestor it's Hunt. Ancestorhunt.com. Ancestorhunt is one word, dot com, forward slash, genealogical, underscore, prison, underscore, records, dot htm. And I think what I'll do here is I'll try to put that in the chat room. That's what I'll do. Mm -hmm. Okay? There we go. Okay. Now, we we have we have comments coming out of the chat, so I'll try to get them to you uh, okay. as as you speak. Another comment by uh, True, she just said her uncle was electrocuted in 1930 and for murder, still collecting records, got all the black newspaper articles founded on black sheep ancestors years ago. And that is listed here as one of the resources. Black sheep is listed here. And also on this page that I just mentioned to you, all the the prison executions are uh, here by some states, not all states. But, for example, in Texas, there's an index of executions that goes back to 1819 to, to 1982. So that's pretty far back. Uh, there's a general list of prison executions, even females, and uh and also people executed for rape, you'll probably find that most of those people are African-Americans. So this is a good good starting point for general information about the sources of uh, prison prison records. And, and it is by state, so the state prison records are discussed in each one. Okay. For each one. Okay, so move forward. Yes. All right. Thank you. I'm going to go now and talk. So I said uh, family. We talked about family. We talked about newspapers. And then I found quite a bit of great information at the police department. So I just walked into to the police department and asked about their historical records. And it was just a good day for me because they had a display in the lobby at that time of some of their old log books and their old mugshot books. Now, if you want to find something interesting to look at, look at the old mugshot books because you see these uh, black and white photographs that are beautiful uh, with these descriptions of individuals and the descriptions of the nature of the crime. So uh, that was just a very fascinating thing for me. Just from the booking information alone, you begin to collect genealogical information, such as the person's name, of course, their physical descriptions, 
any aliases they may have, uh, the crime they committed, the date, and the and comments that were written by uh, the booking officer. Always read the comments. They are always interesting. In addition to the mugshots, I found uh, police logbooks where the the desk officer would write down a description of the crimes that were being committed during that during that uh, period of time. So these are always starting points for uh, finding out about a criminal activity. Imagine going and finding a mugshot of an ancestor. What a what a great uh, find that would be. And that actually is what led me to uh, follow the young man that I'd like to talk a little bit about when we get to the state crime. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the misdemeanor, this lesser offense, county clerk's office is where the the records would be. If it's a misdemeanor, it's not going any further than the county clerk's office. So when you go to the county clerk's office, you can search the misdemeanor docket. And the docket is just an index to the court cases. And so it's in chronological alphabetical order, so it's pretty easy to go through. Even if you have a large uh, window of time that you're researching, you can go through. It's just written there in alphabetical order. You can you can see if you find your ancestor in there. And from the docket, you get the case number and then request the case file. So for just for kicks, I, I was going through and found uh, my uh, great uncle. His name was Cy Branch, Sinus Branch. And he was in a misdemeanor docket for uh, the offense of false swearing. Now, I don't know what that means. Uh, he pled guilty, and he got a fine and court costs, and he served one day in jail. Okay, now that's great background information. If I'm writing, writing, this is great background information for me to include in there. However, there's limited genealogical information in a misdemeanor court docket. That's not the case in uh, other dockets. So now if we move on to a felony at the state level, now the the records are also going to begin at the county clerk's office, but they end up somewhere else. So I looked up the criminal docket to uh, see what I can find, and I realized that in a criminal docket, there's much more substantial genealogical information because there are more court documents. Every time there's a piece of paper, you're subject to find some genealogical information. So in a criminal court case, there might be an indictment, a subpoena, a jury list, a plea, and even witness statements. So I was intrigued by one of the the um, mugshots I found. This young black man, he looked so innocent, so young. There were two pictures of him, one with a hat on that was like a, a big apple cap. It was so it was so classic. So I started following him. I said, well, let me see what I can find about him, and I found substantial information. Just from the mugshot alone, I found out that his name was James Banks. He committed a felony burglary in 1917. He was 20 years old. He was five, six and a half, 157 pounds, black hair, brown eyes, small mustache, and a scar on the right side of his forehead. And there he was in a photograph in more than one. So following the the line of research, I went to the criminal docket to see what kind of cases I could find that James Banks uh, committed, what kind of crimes did he commit. And I found multiple, multiple cases on the docket for this innocent-looking young man. And uh, each docket, each case came in a red envelope. I was able to request that right in the county clerk's office. They were uh, took them a day to go find them, but they did find them. And they brought me the envelopes, and in each envelope was a multiple uh, documents. And so... I knew right away that there was going to be some good information in there. And you don't think about uh, 
the court case being a record of incarceration, but certainly it is. This is the le- the record that's leading up to the incarceration. So in my in my opinion, records of incarceration include the arrest, the trial, and then the incarceration. So you have multiple choices there. So I found these multiple documents in there. And uh, in his first court case in 1914, he was quite young at that point, uh, he was charged unlawfully in the night by forced threats and fraud, breaking into the private residence there situated and occupied by W.J. Jones without the consent of W.J. Jones with the intent then and there by force, threats and fraud to have carnal knowledge of Frances Plitt, a woman then and there being in the said house without her consent. Well, that raised my curiosity because he's young. I said, well, why is he going in this house to have carnal knowledge? Well, Frances Plitt was his same age. They lived within a, a couple of blocks of each other. And, you know, it's likely that this black young man was going to visit this young white girl as a friend and got busted. He got caught and they turned him in. So he got a case for it. He got a case and he got a $400 bail that was paid by him partially and by two of his close associates. So now I have some close associates because I was able to find the bail, the record of his bail, where it talks about his charge and what his bail is. And so two guys came up, and they are repeated throughout his life, I find them, Washington Blue and Turner Blue. Now what their relationship is to him, I don't know, but they were close enough that they came up and helped him pay that $400 bail. Also, also included in there was a uh, witness statement. And here I'm starting to find out more genealogical information. Um, The witness was G.H. Banks, father of the defendant. And he gave a statement that was a very compelling statement. He says that the family record recording his birth was destroyed during the 1900 storm, but that the said James Banks, Jim Banks, defendant herein, was nursing at his mother's breast at the date of the 1900 storm, and therefore he fixes the age of Jim Banks in this way. So he was 14 years old at the time of this crime. And the details of the of how his father uh, fixed his date was so significant, especially here in Galveston, because the 1900 storm was such a significant event, being the largest, most devastating hurricane in the history of the country, killing 8,000 people. So he, we learned that he and the family went through the 1900 storm, that he was nursing at his mother's breast at the time of the 1900 storm, and we know his father's name. So now additional genealogical information is is coming out. So now by this time I'm getting intrigued. We know he's born around the turn of the century and his father's name is James Banks and that he and the father could not write because he signed his name with uh an X and they and that the family survived the nineteen hundred storm. So rich content is coming out, rich background content is coming out and also we're beginning to see a picture of this young man who's gotten uh, caught up into the criminal history system at a very young age. He had other well, cases. This is, yeah. yeah, this is just so, so amazing because I wonder if anyone even realizes how detailed this information is. I mean, we you haven't have even just, gotten to the detailed information yet. Right. We I mean, you even, even just the overview, just the overview. Just but we're going overview. to take a quick break, come back, and continue to listen to this because you have so much to share. Thank you. Okay. We're taking a break, though. <laughs>
search at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your her, your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday night at 9 p.m. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and you can find them on Blog Talk Radio or iTunes. Also, I'm always looking for guests to share research strategies, special records that they have uncovered or used from the National Archives, as well as state and local resources. And, of course, I love to hear your research stories. So if you would like to be on Blog Talk Radio, please contact me through my website, www.JeannieBRoots.com. Well, you have been listening to Sharon Batiste Gillum's Discuss records, oh, research and records of incarceration. And I'm going to turn this back over to Sharon. But, Sharon, there is a question coming out of the chat. The question yes. is, how long did this young man live? He lived until uh, the 1960s, actually. I found his death record. In fact, uh, one of the individuals who was at Samford found his death record while I was there. He gall- he died in Galveston, and I was able to follow him through through most of his life. He never really got it back together. Um, but, you know, I think the, the end of the story, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story, but we're coming, we're going to talk about what happened to him throughout the next uh, 40 years. Okay. So that was his first uh case was in 1914. Uh, He's 14 years old. Uh, and then he had multiple cases on the docket in 1917 where he's just, like, breaking into things, breaking into houses. And uh, he pled guilty to mur- multiple counts of burglary of a private residence. And he was uh, sentenced to, in three different cases, to 12 years, five years, and three years in in state prison. So that state prison in in Texas is the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville. It was notorious. I found an old photograph of it, and just to look at it, you think, that is not a place I want to be. Mm-hmm. So now that he is being, he has to go through an intake, intake process into the Texas State Penitentiary, here is where the records really get rich. And this is not going to be unique to Texas. If they are bringing a prisoner in, they're going to have some type of uh, of intake process where they find out as much information as possible about that inmate. And, of course, the time period in which uh, the inmate goes into prison really will uh, have to do with uh, what kind of information they are collecting, just like the census. Every census uh, collects different information. But at this point, there I was able to find the convict record of the Texas State Penitentiary, and um, the columns of information were numerous. There was a number, uh, of course, the prisoner's uh, number, his age, height, weight, complexion, eyes, hair, marks on the person, his marital relations, his use of tobacco, whether he was uh, temperate or intemperate. That means did he drink or did he not drink? What kind of education did he have? Did he have a fine education, a common education, or was he illiterate? Was he able to read? Was he able to write? The number of years he had in school, the date of his birth, his birthplace, the birthplace of his father, and the birthplace of his mother. Now, that's a lot of genealogical information. Another question out of the chat is, did he have siblings? Did they say anything about siblings or other relatives? No, they wouldn't wouldn't have said anything about siblings. uh, But uh, if you are... Suppose this was uh, a sibling of someone in your direct line. Suppose he was a collateral line and you're trying to find out information. You would now know where the the father and mother were born. That's right. Because that information is now in the incarcerated person's file. So you've got information on the collateral line. 
There are even more columns of information. That was just part of it. What was his occupation at the time of the conviction? What was the offense, the term of imprisonment, the county, the residence, the plea, when received, the expiration of the sentence, and remarks? Always interesting to read the remarks. Now, I was able to find that much information in one register because I was I knew from the court records when he was sent to state prison, what state prison he was sent to, and then I was able to get the records, the state prison records from the state archives. And so that that's what I mean when I say the nature of the crime will lead you to the records. This was a state felony. He went to state prison. There were historical records. They were in the state archives. So that's a place to look. And it depends on how old the records are as to whether they would be there or not. Of course, newer records probably would not. They would probably still be with the prison, and you may not have access to them for privacy reasons. But historical records go to, if it's a state crime, try the state archives. Now, I was also very fortunate to find that the Texas Conduct Register were on Ancestry.com. And don't forget those kinds of databases because people are realizing the value of, of records of incarceration. So on Ancestry, I found the Texas Conduct Register. You know, Texas is very proud of their prison, so they kept really good records. So this this young man then began to tug at my heart because his conduct register, well, the conduct register is a reg- is a register of the punishments a prisoner received while they were incarcerated, what the punishments were and what the offense were, what the offenses were. This guy, James Banks, served time in seven different prison locations. He had this long record of conduct violations and here are the kinds of violations that he had laziness impudence and fighting now fighting is uh black and white but laziness and impudence that's pretty subject to gray area he was issued multiple and cruel punishments uh lashes 14 to 20 lashes with the regular strap and these are the these are quotations 14 to 20 lashes for laziness, for impudence. And he had so many punishments that they had to add a page to his um, to his conduct register. So it was very heartbreaking. And uh, the last thing on his conduct register is that he was discharged on the 31st of January, 1932. So I got a little curious about whether or not I could find um, – incarcerated people in census records. I thought, well, wonder if Huntsville, if they take the, the census at the prison. And yes, indeed, they did. In 1920, James Banks was 22 years, years old, and he is in the population census at the Huntsville prison at Ramsey State Farm. So if you know approximately when a uh, person was in prison, check the census records for the state prison in your area or even the county jail, and and you will find, in many cases, a list of all the different prisoners who were incarcerated at that time. So here's what here's what we discovered about James Banks. By now I'm 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 really attached to him because I have this picture of it, this photograph of him. So this is just a paragraph of what I was able to find just in his prison record alone. James Banks was born in Texas in 1899. His father, G.H. Banks, was born in Texas, as was his mother. He had a scar on his left eyebrow, and he wore a size 9 shoe. James attended school for only four years, but he could read and write. He was occupied as a laborer and was not married. James drank, and he smoked. At the age of 11 in 1910, he served time, 11, 
In 1910, he served time in the Galveston County Jail and caught his first felony case in 1914. He didn't serve time because he was still a minor in 1914. Three years later, in 1917, he committed a string of burglaries, was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in Huntsville State Prison. He served 15 years at seven different prison farms and was released in 1922. So... That was quite a bit of information. And the reason I found out that he was age 11 and in in the county jail was because I looked in the census in, in 1910. After finding him in 1920, I looked in the census in 1910, and he was 11 years old in the county jail, in the county jail waiting for the magistrate to come uh, uh, at in, in May. The census was taken in February. Now, here is a story that becomes sad because at 11 years old, he's already out of school, barely out of school. He commits a crime where he steals something worth $20, and they put him in jail. They made him stay in jail as an 11-year-old with grown men. So the least of what happened to him was that he was tutored by prisoners. The most mm-hmm. uh, just thing that happened is that he was abused in prison. So he became... Uh, acclimated to prison life at a very early age. He never really got his life back on track. I found him again in 1940 census after he got out. He was a rumor unmarried. He never got it together. He died in the 60s. So it really is a story of so many people's lives who get caught up in the system. But definitely you can really find out how um, so much information from people who are who have been incarcerated. Now, the other thing that is uh, gripping about researching uh, records of incarceration is that there really is a constitutional basis for slavery. The Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereas the person shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So basically, slavery is still uh, legal if you are a criminal, and that definitely happened uh, after uh, Reconstruction and during the period of time that this country needed to have uh, many, 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 many workers to uh, build the infrastructure of this country. The reputation of black people as workers went from loyal, hardworking to uh, criminal and lazy because they had to figure out how to pick up so many different people to be work to work on chain gangs and to build roads, to build bridges, to clear brush, to do everything. So there was a period in time when so many people uh, were arrested not because they crossed the law, but because the law crossed them. They were victims of the cha- of uh, brutal and unfair um, laws that were used to pick up large numbers of people. Some of the prison abuses included deplorable conditions, cruel and corporal punishments. Convict leasing was the greatest of these, where prisoners were leased to local planters and industrialists, and the prisoners, the prisons themselves got money for buying and selling convict leases. They provided cheap labor under cruel working conditions with economic benefits to the state and the local economy. And uh, the other horrible... Uh, prison abuse is called peonage, which is debt servitude, where fines were assessed on people for minor crimes like vagrancy, and when they couldn't pay the fines, they were slapped and put in jail. This was all a conspiracy was planned to generate additional workers. So we have some very difficult situations that are reflected in the prison systems, and it's historical. Now, if you're looking at... at uh, Economic conditions in a community is very easy to uh, use the records of the state prison because they they keep fabulous records uh, on the convicts and just huge 
books I found at the Texas State Archives that were so heavy, uh, a man had to lift them for me and put them on the table. That's how many columns of information were provided on different kinds of things. The number of convicts received, how many were lifers, how many got this many, how many years. And in the census, I was able to really see the segregation and occupational differences between uh, the black prisoners and the white prisoners uh, because the black prisoners were largely farmers. That means field hands. That is not farming. That is they were field hands, while the white prisoners were carpenters and firemen and blacksmiths, and et cetera. So it's very re- revealing uh, to look at a community's uh, involvement or uh, in the incarceration of, of black people or in the incarceration of people in general. There was prison reform, and uh, there are records related to the Justice Department investigation was a huge uh, uh, investigation, and the NAACP, that was one of their major first campaigns, was a campaign to to stop prison systems from uh, taking advantage of people, picking them up for minor crimes and incarcerating them. So... So far, we've talked about the sources and the records being the county police. We went to the county clerk's office. I went to the state prison at Huntsville. I went to state archives. I got information from Ancestry.com. I found mugshots and booking information. I found case files and convict logs and registers, prison statistical ledgers, and even the United States Census gave us information about uh, incarceration. So these are all sources that you can use to find information about your incarcerated ancestor or even a collateral line that might be of interest to you. Now I'm going to take a breath <laughs> and because I want to go on to federal records, and I see that I have about 10 minutes to get that done. So um, felonies of a federal nature federal crimes set by prison, and then the federal records uh, start at the county clerk's office, but, of course, they end up at a federal prison. And uh, some of the earliest uh, federal prisons were the prison in Atlanta, San Francisco, that would have been uh, Alcatraz, and Leavenworth, Kansas. So I thought I would uh, look into the federal records of one of my homeboys, and uh, Bernice was outstanding in helping me to get uh, access to these records. And if it's a federal prison, I'll ask my listeners and chatters, where do you think the records were? Of course, they were at the National Archives because that was a federal prison, and so the National Archives holds all the federal Records. So Jack Johnson, of course, uh, was uh, the first black heavyweight champion of the world. He was born in Galveston. That's why I say he's my homeboy. This was a man who liked fancy clothes, fast cars, and women of all colors. He was flamboyant, and he was unapologetic about it. So uh, he was sentenced to a year and a day for a violation of the White Slave Traffic Act. I was actually able to uh, have a copy of of his uh, sentencing papers that said exactly what he was going to have to do, which is spend a year and a day in Leavenworth. Why was it, why was it specified a year and a day? Because it, in order for it to be a federal sentence, it has to be, a felony sentence, excuse me, it has to be more than a year. So they put him in jail for a year and a day for carrying a white woman across state lines, and that was called the White Slave Traffic Act, which they actually uh, wrote for him, the Man Act. So uh, I said, Bernice, go get me this file, and she did, of course, and I was just amazed, thrilled at what I could find. The first thing I found was his uh, his mugshot. His inmate number and his mugshot uh, were there. His intake record, including his fingerprints, 
He gave his physical description, his place of birth, the marks and scars and moles that he had, his residency, his sentence, his fine, and uh, uh, there is a space for his mother and his father's name, but both were dead at the time of this, and so they left it blank. But the detailed descriptions of him, down to how long his arms were and what his scars were and his actual signature, these are the things that really get me excited. The signature, his fingerprints, these are personal, these are unique things. And uh, going forward in the federal records that uh, we got from the National Archives, I even found a daily labor record for him that he was employed at the hospital and he served as an orderly during the period of time that he was incarcerated. And it was a calendar and they had even the days that he worked. So that is an awful lot of information. Included in his file, I think it was uh, several hundred pages of files, and there was correspondence from him and to him. Now, I don't know if they would keep correspondence for people who are less uh, famous or notorious. He was considered a notorious inmate, and so I had to go through some hoops to get them to release that file. But his correspondence was was in there, and there was correspondence from the warden or to the warden from a man who was trying to uh, help him. He says, from what I can learn, Johnson has been more sinned against than sinning. And my intention is to boost him a bit through Dr. McLean if he honestly intends to be guided by McLean in an effort to come back. And that's from a George H. Milburn, somebody who wrote to the warden trying to give him help to send him a trainer in prison so he could get back on the road. Personal correspondence included uh, in, uh telegrams back and forth between him and his family members where he's wishing happy Merry Christmas. He says, although our first Christmas apart, I feel closer to you because of unfortunate conditions, but let us forget for a moment our troubles and join in the spirit of the day. The family join me in sending greetings and wishing you a Merry Christmas uh, today. And so, I mean, that's a very touching uh a communication. There was also a list of the visitors, the people who were uh, allowed to come and visit him, and then the dates in which the people came to visit him. Um, there was uh, personal correspondence to his wife. Hello, dear. What's the matter? Did you receive uh, my check from Kansas City? If not, wire me. How's everything? Writing you tomorrow very personal. Uh, And then there was the disciplinary record. I think that one thing that we talked about earlier was that he was uh, bold, he was unapologetic, and here is one of the violations that he received the discipline for. His violation was that he did use the the guard's toilet. So he was like, I'm going to the bathroom, and he did not allow anybody to stop him from doing that. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so that all of that is to say that whether you are searching at a federal institution or a state institution, there is much to be much to be found in uh, records of incarceration. Um, you can start by going to familysearch.org uh, because I did a search for, you know, you can search by location to see whether there are convict records, and I put in, by subject, I put in convict records, and they came up, and uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary records are there, the Texas and Louisiana are my states, and so that's why I'm usually stuck on those. And Louisiana State records run from 1866 to 1963. That's a pretty big, that's a lot, that's a lot of information. That's just after the Civil War up until the early 60s. So start with Family Search and definitely check your, your state archives. And there are even uh, prison uh, museums, and they have a lot of the information too. 
So if I have to sum it up, the strategies for researching records of incarceration, the first thing you do is discover if a crime was committed, get all the details of the offense. The most important ones are the degree of the offense and the jurisdiction, and then follow the trail of the crime. Figure out what the crime was, what the court was that handled it, and what was the incarceration and where was he sent. Uh, find out what records exist. Definitely go to WorldCat and Internet Archives, Ancestry, Family Search, your state archives, and the National Archives, and you can locate uh, and study the finding aids. So there's one that I wanted to tell you about that is really good, and it's a research guide for prison records, and it was created by the Ohio Historical Society. And I think if you can just Google that, it's called Research Guide to Prison Records, Ohio History, and it comes up. It's a very good guide, and there may be others for other particular states, but that was the one that I wanted to uh, let you know about. So as I was leaving the courthouse one day after I was you know, doing my research there, uh, and my mind was swimming with James Banks, who had been put on all these different prison farms and forced to work uh, on these prison farms. I turned the corner, and what did I see but the guys in stripes uh, cutting the grass out in front of the out front of the courthouse, and I thought, well, well, look at that. Things change, but they really remain the same. So They certainly do remain the same. They certainly do remain the same. Yes, indeed. But you have provided us with a, a wealth of information. And I just want to remind people that at the National Archives, they do have the records of the Bureau of Prisons, and that's Record Group oh, 129 yeah. from mm-hmm. 1870 to 1981. So please, I mean, check those records because you would be amazed. And just as you said, you found something in the newspaper I wasn't looking. I didn't expect to find an ancestor in the newspaper that had committed a crime, but I did, and it was 1883. And to my surprise, there was a governor's order for his arrest. And I went to the Louisiana State Archives, met with Judy Riffles, and what did they bring me but this huge book, just as someone brought you a huge book, Right. through the book, and there was the original governor's order for the arrest of my great-great-great-uncle for wow. committing a murder. So the, the records are there. The information is there. Just as you said, the newspaper, but start with the family. If they have that secret, tease out what the secret is. If tease he was something out. else, he was something else. Let's find <laughs> out if that's something else got him involved some kind of way in the penal system. But the the information is just amazing. So I want to thank you so much for bringing this information to us tonight. And hopefully as you begin your genealogical research, you get to the point where you just can't find people, think they just might be in jail. And that's a place to look. They may be in jail. Well, thank you so much. And let me just uh, tell everyone, I hope that you will join me next week. Next Thursday night, I will have um, Dr. Amrita Chakrabati Myers, and she will be discussing her book, Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston. Oh, this is going to be a wonderful This sounds fascinating. Oh, yes, very fascinating. So thank you so much for tuning in tonight. And remember, your ancestors left footprints, even in penal records. Therefore, you shall follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Please remember to like AfroGenius.com and my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond, and to listen to the African Roots podcast tomorrow with Angela Walton-Raji and 
Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell. And don't forget, Antoinette Harrell also has a book out, The Department of Justice, Slavery, Involuntary Servitude, and Peonage. And she's talking also about some of these very records. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Good night, everyone. Good night, Sharon. Thank you so much for joining the show. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.